Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Put your finger at verse 11. Let me do this very quickly, something that really needs to be done each week as we come back to our study of this letter that Paul wrote to the church at Rome. Greatest letter ever penned. No question in my mind that that is a true statement. And what we need to do is do a real quick review, if, even if you've been here. For those of you that have not, this will help give context to what we've been talking about because this is an ongoing, unfolding development. It's logical, profound truth built upon truth. And so let me talk to you just quickly about the truth that we have been looking at for a number of weeks since we hit John, I mean, Romans chapter 5, verse 12 and forward. We've been talking about a great doctrine, the great doctrine of the believer's union with Jesus Christ. An incredible doctrine. And the doctrine is based upon this truth, this reality, that when the believer puts his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that at that moment of salvation, that here's what takes place in the spiritual realm, that that believer is by the Spirit of God baptized into the Lord Jesus Christ, joined into union with Jesus Christ. And that union is a very significant, a very real, a very deep and profound union. And here is the implication of that union. That what is true of Christ is true of the believer. Specifically, what Paul has been teaching about Christ's death to sin and his resurrection to new life, that those two things that are true about Christ in his death to sin and his resurrection to new life, by virtue of the believer being united to Christ, being joined in union with Christ, that what is true about Christ in those two things is also true of the believer. That, in a general, overarching sense, that is the doctrine of a believer's union with Christ. So we're going to continue the study now as we get to Romans chapter 6, verse 11. Romans chapter 6, verse 11, Paul wrote this, as a conclusion statement of all that he's been talking about with this union that the believer has to Christ. He comes to this kind of crescendo here in verse 11, and he writes, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So you also. Verses 9 and 10, he has been specifically identifying what was true of Christ in his death and what was true of Christ in his resurrection. Then he comes to verse 11 and he says, so you also. Connection to what I just said. You also. What is true of Christ if you're a believer is true of you related to his death to sin and his resurrection to new life. That is the what. That's the what of what the text says. I've told you on a number of occasions that almost always a 
in some form or another, my sermons can be organized in this fashion. It's the what, the so what, and the now what. The what is the what does the text say. That's what the text says, what I just pointed out. The next section is the so what, what does the text mean? What are the implications that we can draw from that truth? We're going to talk about that, and then we'll bring that to a conclusion with the now what, and the now what is what must I do about what the text is saying. So the what is a believer in their identification, their union with Christ of salvation, what is true of Christ in his death to sin, and in his resurrection to new life is true of the believer. That's the what. Here's the so what. What does that mean? What are the implications? Well, on the surface, let me just make this overarching statement, and then I'll give you four specifics. The overarching statement is this. It's a comprehensive, radical, complete, wholesale change that takes place in the life of the believer. It's not a makeover, it's a brand new face. It's not a little bondo and spray paint, it's a brand new car. It is a radical, entire change, comprehensive. Now let me give you four aspects of that change. The believer in Christ has went from, there's a transition, has went from death's dominion to death's victory has went from death's dominion to death's victory. Now, let me explain that. We have talked about pretty extensively that before we are saved, we are under the dominion of death. Death has its power over us. And the reason that is is because we were breakers of the law of God and sin gets its power through the law and the result of sin is death so that the individual that is still in their sins is under death's dominion, dominated by the reality of a bondage to sin and on the way to an eternal death. But with Christ, death's dominion transitions into death's victory. Here's what I mean by that. The person who dies in their sin dies a radically different life than the person who dies in Christ. Let me illustrate that by taking you to a story of Jesus' life outside the tomb of Lazarus. He is standing there. Lazarus has been four days dead and placed behind a sealed tomb, and the mourners are there, and Lazarus' sister Martha is there, and he's in dialogue with Martha, and she is making a statement, asking a question, and Jesus responds to her in John 11, verse 25 and 26 by saying this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, it might sound like on the surface there that Jesus contradicted himself because he says, he talks about the believer dying, and then at the end of the sentence he says, but the believer doesn't ever die. What is meant by that? Here's what's meant by that. Jesus is teaching this truth about the ending of sin's dominion here, just like Paul has been talking about in Romans chapter 6. You see, death has its dominion because it holds its victim in its power after death for an eternity. 
Death does not mean, biblically speaking, the spiritual death does not mean annihilation. It means that if you die in your sin, you are going to be separated eternally from God in hell. That's spiritual death. And that dominion remains over that unbeliever's life for an eternity. But if you're a believer when you die, a radically different thing happens. A completely wholesale different thing takes place that you actually don't go into an existence of separation from God. You get joined into a relationship to God that is never broken from that point forward and forever. And instead of it being the sting of death, it opens the door to the greatest victory of eternity for you. Let me illustrate it like this. When Jesus died on the cross, he took the, the metal of the sword of death and he threw that metal into the furnace. And through his suffering, he heated that furnace up until the metal melted into a molten mass there. And in his death and his resurrection, he took that metal and he forged it and he shaped it into a key. And that key unlocks for you the glories and the eternal joy of heaven so that what had been the thing that held sway over you for an eternity now becomes the threshold and the doorway through which you walk into eternal victory. That's the transition that takes place for those who have been united to the Lord Jesus Christ. It takes you from death's defeat into death's victory. So what that means is that we, if we are believers, we should not fear death. Now, I'm not saying that we are going to just relish it and want to run to it and get it accomplished quickly. That's up to the Lord. But we do not need to fear it. Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is what? You know, it's gain. To die is gain. Why would he say that? He could say that because he knew another statement that he made that for me to be separate from the body, meaning death, is to be present with the Lord. Far better, he said, for me to be there. I'm longing for that to be true, but I'm going to stay here as long as God wants me to. But when my hour comes, it's going to be great victory and great gain for me. Because he knew that he was going to walk into victory in a new sense than he had ever experienced before. So for the believer, death is replaced. The defeat of death is replaced with the victory of death. And it becomes the key, the threshold through which we walk into a new reality. Secondly, the believer in Christ has went from God's wrath to God's grace. Really what we're doing here is we are summarizing all of what's come before in Romans. Talked a lot about the wrath of God from Romans 1.18 all the way down to 
Romans 3, 19, that whole section, we were there for almost a year. That whole section was about the wrath of God. But when a believer is united to the Lord Jesus Christ, they go from God's wrath to God's grace. And what that means is they enter into a brand new relationship with God. You see, before salvation, Scripture says we're enemies. We are rebels against God. We have taken up arms against God. And that His, his holiness and His righteousness demands that sin be paid. And His justice then puts us under condemnation and slates us for judgment. But in Christ... That wrath of God is ended, and here's why. Because Jesus Christ in his death on the cross took all of the wrath of God stored up from all eternity, from the beginning of creation, first sin, all the way to the end of time, all of that wrath stored up. Jesus Christ drunk that to the last drop in the sacrifice that he paid for sin. He satisfied the wrath of God towards sin, took all of sin's penalty, so that when we are united to Christ, there's no more wrath for us. It's gone. There's not one drop left in the cup for us that we have to consume. But not only that, not only that, we are moved out of that realm and into a brand new existence, into a brand new relationship of peace with God. We come under the favor of God instead of the wrath of God. It's not just that we don't get what we deserve. It's that we get what we shouldn't get. We're not punished, but instead we are given all of the blessings of God. We go from God's wrath to God's grace. Let me read you a statement here profound truth here, John chapter 17, verse 23. Here's Jesus praying prior to his crucifixion. Praying to the Father, we're going to jump right into the middle of a thought here, but you'll, you'll get the point here at the end of, this, of the verse. He says, I and them and you and me, praying for believers, that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me, and here it is, listen, and love them even as you love me. Did you hear the qualifier there about the kind of love that God has for the believer? The statement of quality about the love of God for the believer, it is a love that equals the love that the Father has for the only begotten Son. That is clearly what that says. That is not only unconditional love, it's incomprehensible love. It's indescribable love. And if Jesus hadn't said it himself, I would say it's unbelievable love. But it's believable because Jesus said it. God loves you as a believer the same depth and the height and breadth of love that he has for his son, his co-equal, co-eternal, holy son. He has that for you. 
same measure, no degree less. That's the kind of love that God has for you. That's because you are now no longer under the wrath of God, but you are under the grace of God. Here's the third implication, the third, what does this mean for me? The believer in Christ has went from sin's slavery to the Spirit's power. From sin's slavery to the Spirit's power. Prior to salvation, we were in bondage to sin. We were impotent. We were helpless and could not rise above sin. I don't mean that you could never say no to committing a single sin, but I mean the whole tenure and course of your life was that you were in absolute bondage and hopeless and impotent against living against and saying no to sin. But there has been a change in that relationship. A change in two ways related to sin. Let me give them to you. First one is obvious. The penalty of sin has been canceled against you. That's what happens because of the death of Christ. Because he took your penalty, the penalty against you is canceled. But that's not the whole story. Here's the rest of the story is that the power of sin has been broken. The power of sin and its ability to hold you captive, helpless and impotent, that is broken now in your life. That is no longer true of you if you are a believer. The believer is seen in a brand new position with God. Let me give you a couple of verses from 2 Peter chapter 1. Verse 3, Peter wrote this, that his God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Here's what that means. It means that everything that you need to live a godly life, if you're a believer, it's already at your disposal. It's already been made available to you, everything that you need. And then in verse 4, God has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. You may become partakers of the divine nature. What does that mean? It means this. It means that the Spirit of God that dwelled in the Son of God while He walked the shores of Palestine for 33 years, that that Spirit of God that dwelled in Him dwells in you. Same Spirit. Now, I'm not saying that we have the Spirit in the exact measure that Christ had the Spirit. We certainly can be filled with the Spirit. Scripture says that God gave to Jesus the Spirit without limit. But here's what I do know about how much of the Spirit is available for you and me. It's this much. Everything that we need. Nothing short of what we need to live a godly life. All of it has been made accessible to us. Here's one of the most beautiful truths about Christianity. It's this. That when you come to the Son, you get with Him everything else. 
Do you understand that? When you get the sun or when you are placed in the sun, all of the rest of it is yours. Let me give you the profound logical statement of that from Paul that he gives two chapters later. It is convincing and it is profound in its beauty and power. He says, talking about God, Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Folks, here's the logic. It's so simple and easy to understand. If while you were an enemy under the wrath of God, raising up arms against God as a rebel, if while you were in that condition, He gave His only begotten, co-equal, co-eternal Son to pay the horrific death penalty sacrifice for you, if He did that for you when you were estranged and His enemy, when you are saved and married to Him, put in Him, so that when He sees you now as a believer and He sees the very righteousness of Christ, and he sees you as his child and as one that he loves infinitely, how is he not also now, having done that for you then when you were an enemy under his wrath, how will he not also, when you're over here now, just open the floodgates of heaven and say, everything else is now yours. Everything else is now yours. That's the truth. That's the truth of what is available and given to the believer. That you go from sin's power to the Spirit's power. Sin's slavery to the Spirit's power. Ephesians 3.20 Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or imagine, according to the power at work within us, Okay, qualifier again. The power that has at work within us, here's the qualifier. That power is a power beyond your wildest imagination. That power is something that you could never even verbalize to request how great it, that, a request that would match how great it is. It is beyond your comprehension, your understanding, and your ability even to make a request that would come up to match what it has to offer. That's the kind of power that is available to the believer. So you are not in sin slavery anymore. You are in the Spirit's power. Do you know that? Do you access that? Here's the last truth I want to bring out here related to the implication of what this truth means. It's this, the believer in Christ has went from being really Satan's pawn or Satan's tool into being a vessel for God's glory. Vessel for God's glory. Ephesians 3.19 you see, the power of God has a purpose. The Spirit's power, the Holy Spirit's power in you has a purpose. And Paul stated that the previous verse there in Ephesians 3, right before Ephesians 
Paul had written Ephesians 3.19, which said this, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You see, the Spirit of God is working in your life to make you like the Son of God, and He is the Holy Spirit, okay? It's going to be a little test here. It should be pretty simple. What kind of a life, if the Spirit of God is working in you to shape and fashion you, what kind of a life is the Holy Spirit want to make of you? What kind of a life does the Holy Spirit want you to live? He wants you to live a holy life. He wants you to live a holy life. And not just He wants you to live, He is working in His power that goes beyond your comprehension to accomplish a holy life in you. Now the third component here, we've looked at the what, what is this doctrine of the believer's union, we've looked at the so what, what does it mean, now, but now what, what then must I do as a believer, maybe let me say this first, what must you do if you're not a believer? Oh, folks, there is only one thing. That's you. You need to run to the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to recognize your sin, and you need to flee to the only place where there is salvation. For there is salvation under heaven given under no other name except the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to run to the one who died and paid your penalty and rose to give you victory. And you need to throw yourself at him and ask him for his forgiveness, repent of your sins, and receive his grace. And all of those four things that we just said will come true of you. And then if you're a believer, here's the now what. And just want to tell you, Two things here. First one, we've been hitting this in the past, but it's so simplistic. But I think it's one that we just overlook because it seems so academic. The verse here in Romans 6.11 is that you must also consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. You're supposed to Consider yourself. This, again, is the first time in the letter that Paul has brought any applicational point. First time he has told you to do anything. In five and a half chapters, he has been laying down the foundational doctrine so that he could come to this place. His goal from the get-go has been a holy life. But he has laid all of that doctrine in place so that he can now come and begin to make application of, to life of the truth of Christ and what it does, what he does for us. And his, don't miss this, his first applicational point is this. You got to consider what is true as true. You got to believe what God has said is true about you, that it actually is 
true about you. And what has God said? He has said you are dead to sin. You no longer live in its realm. You're not under its dominion anymore. You're not a slave to it anymore. That has completely forever finished for you. And you have been now resurrected into a new life. What kind of a life? A life where the power of God, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the same power through which Christ lived, that power is now fully accessible to you. And the first key to you accessing it is you've got to believe it. You've got to absolutely embrace it with all of your being. So that when sin tries to raise its ugly head and assert itself again in your life, you don't just cave to it. Oh, I've always done that. I've tried before. I can't get any victory there. No, you need to say, that's a lie. That's a done deal. I am not that person anymore. I am taking the facts, not by what I see, not by what I feel, but I'm going to set them squarely on the objective truth of history and what God has said is true. And what God has said is true is I am dead to that. That power has ended in my life. And I am now living in a brand new realm, in the realm of God's grace where his peace is and where his favor is and where his love is as wide and as deep and as high as the love that he has for his own son. And all the power of Christ through his spirit is at my disposal. You've got to first believe that before you can live that. That is the greatest, I believe, lesson of holy living. You've got to first believe what God has said is true about you. That'll be the foundation from which you step into victory. And if you are not on that foundation, you will not step into victory. Here's the second, and I'll close with this. Second, now what? What must I do? Follower of Christ, not only must you consider that what God said is true about you is true about you, you also must look at sin differently. You need to see sin differently. You see, when you sinned as an unbeliever, you were sinning against the law of God. You were a slave, sinning as a slave against God's law. But when you become a believer, you are no longer sinning against the law of God. You are sinning against the love of God. You are no longer a slave sinning. You are a son or a daughter sinning. Oh, that to me is a far greater thing. You see, as a slave, you were in bondage and it was hopeless. But the reality of the doctrine of your union with Christ is that sin's power has been broken so that when we sin, we sin by choice in freedom against the love of the Father. So we need to think differently about sin. 
and end with this warning. See, what the Father will not allow is the Father will not allow the son or the daughter of God to continue in perpetual sin. I don't mean, I'm not talking about you in a moment of weakness blowing it. I'm talking about this repetitive, this besetting sin, this thing that you just come back to time and time again. I believe the teaching of Scripture is that the Father is not going to just sit back and allow you to continue in that. I'm not trying to make any kind of a statement on how long He'll let that go on. I have no idea. But here's what Scripture says. Whoever the Lord loves, He disciplines. You see, out of His love, He will just not let that continue. I don't know what He'll do. He's got a whole bunch of resources at with which to accomplish what he needs to accomplish. And he wants to do that gently and guide you forward and to guide me forward gently, but if I will not respond, then he might take my health. He might empty my finances. He might strip my business. He might bring all my hopes and dreams for things in life to an end. He might put me flat on my face in the dirt, but all of that is based upon His love because He loves you too much to let you go on and continue in sin that harms you. He will not let you go on sinning. He won't let you go, but He won't let you go on sinning. The Lord disciplines those He loves. And so what we need to do, no, folks, I am so aware of this. I, I know that I know that I know those times when the flesh rises up and tries to assert itself. Tries to drag me back into those old patterns and habits. Tries to bring me back to that same vomit again and again. I know all about that. Just like you do. But what I've got to do in order to break the cycle, is I've got to first believe what God has said about me is true so that I don't approach that fatalistically, so that I understand I don't have to do that anymore. There is all the power that I need to say no to that. And I need to see sin as an affront, not to the law of God, but to the love of God. A love that equals the love that the Father had for the only begotten, co-equal, co-eternal Son. That's the love that I'm sinning against. If that's where you're at, you need to just 
fall on your face before the Lord in your prayer closet and say, oh God, help me to believe what you've said about me. To see sin rightly and to begin to live in your power toward a holy life for your glory. Because that's a possibility. God's giving you all that you need. Worship team, would you come? And just close this in a word of prayer. Church, would you stand? And I just want to pray for you, over you. And as I do that, I want to pray for myself. I need the truth of this so desperately. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I want to take you at your word. I thank you for crafting, leading this unfolding truth as Paul penned it. Oh, how relevant it is, how perfect it is for life here 2,000 years later. We just haven't changed. Thank you for that truth. Lord, help me to believe that. Help those believers in the sound of my voice to believe that. To really embrace that truth so that the love of God would just cause us to lean into you, to lean into a dependence on you and lean into a pursuit of a holy life. Do that, Lord. Those of here, Lord, that have never accepted your son, God, show them their need. Let them see the condition of being under your wrath and your judgment and sin. But let that be the guide that will bring them to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior who so longs to forgive and to cleanse and so longs to take them in and hide them in himself so that they are in Christ and all of these truths become their reality forevermore. Give them the faith to believe in you, Jesus. Thank you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.